0: All right. Now we are moving into looking at the book of Hebrews today. Um, What I want to talk about, Jesus is better than. He's better than angels. This is um, a a part of this book that is going to go be hit upon quite a bit. Uh, So we're in Hebrews chapter one. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there to Hebrews chapter one. I'm going to read this passage. It's a little bit of a long passage, but starting with verse 5 to verse 14, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when the God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies a footstool footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation?" So the, the author here is kind of just, just composing here uh, some, some ideas, talking about angels and talking about Jesus and comparing and, and seeing how we see the difference. He set that up last week when, when we looked at verses 1 through 4. But let me just remind you a couple things. This is written uh, mainly to Christians, probably uh, more than likely, Hebrew Christians, because he relies heavily as, proof texting he relies heavily on the old testament which is what they would be incredibly familiar with all right and so there are in this in this book of hebrews there's 32 direct references to the old testament quotations and that type of thing and you could almost think of this like a court case he's proving a point he's laying out the case for a point now what's the point the point is jesus is supreme jesus is superior Jesus is better than anything else. That's the point. And we saw early on in the introduction, we saw, that, uh, we saw seven things, eight things in the introduction. Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the son of God, the rightful owner of everything, the creator, sustainer of the universe. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the remedy for sin. He's our king. And the last one was he's just better. He's just better. And so we learned some interesting things last week, and we will continue to learn some interesting things this week. But I also want to tell you the goal here is not necessarily that you learn interesting things, because they're fun to learn, but in and of themselves, without application, they just become knowledge that puffs up. So the goal for us is to see Jesus more clearly, and then we will change to become more like him. That's what will happen so we have to keep that in mind. And so he's, he's writing in a way he knows will grab the attention of his readers. He's going to uh, present the evidence in a way he knows will make them kind of pay attention. And so he says it in, in kind of a different way. We looked at that, and we'll look at it some more. And he's going to signal this in verse 5 when he begins with the word for. And that word is telling us everything he said in 1 through 4 now it comes down, and he's going to explain why it's so important. So whatever you see in Scripture a for, you know, or, or a therefore, you find out what it's there for, because it grabs something that just happened and then that was just written about, and then it explains it more and builds upon it. It links it. It's a linking word there. And so he's telling us, let me, let me prove to you that Jesus is better than angels. And he's going to give seven quotes from the Old Testament now, I'm not one of those people that go crazy over numbers in the Bible because I think sometimes people take numbers in the Bible and just make too much out of them. But I think here there's a legitimate reason to think. Why did he pick seven verses? Because in the Bible and to, and to the Jews, seven was the symbol of completeness or fullness. And so he's going to use seven points to say Jesus is completely superior to angels. He's going to reinforce the faith of these Hebrew Christians. He's going to convince Hebrews who are not so sure of this, uh, of the truthfulness of this faith. Because these people are facing difficulties and persecutions simply because they're Christians. And here's something they must have been struggling with. Before we were Christians and everyone knew us just as Jews, it wasn't this bad. Because the Roman Empire generally accepted Jews. They thought they were a little quirky with their monotheistic stuff, but they accepted them. But Christians were, by and large, considered a threat. And so the persecutions fell on Christians. And so you have these Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, and now they're being persecuted. And they're like, this didn't happen before. And it causes doubt and wondering in their mind. And so... He's gonna quote from the Old Testament because he knows that carries weight with them. It should carry weight with us also. But there is a natural question here. What's the big deal about angels? Why is he spending, he's gonna spend two whole chapters hammering about angels. And why is that? And I think you know, we, we can wonder why does he feel the need to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to angels? And some of that is because we have a misunderstanding of what angels are. This is kind of what is a popular thing. Little cherubs, you know, just cute little babies with wings. Who wouldn't want a baby with wings? Me, I would not want a baby with wings now that I think about it. But we don't have a biblical idea of these amazing, incredible, fearsome creatures that God has created I need to just get rid of that, yeah. So, oh, well. The word angel means a messenger. They're messengers. They represent God. They carry out the work of God. They are powerful and privileged. They are so glorious that some are tempted to worship them. This is interesting when you think about this. In Revelation 22, an angel appears to John, the apostle John, the one who went in the tomb, the one who knew Jesus intimately. Was like They were like best friends. And an angel appears to him as he's writing the book of Revelation, and he starts to worship the angel. And the angel says, "What in the no? I'm an angel. Worship God." At the end of our scriptures, we have John being admonished to get it right, dude. Worship. We worship God. Isn't that amazing? But here's why: because angels are such astounding creatures that that was the natural inclination that he had. So the writer's going to use Old Testament Scripture, and he's going to prove his points. First, I want you to see three things that God never said to an angel. Three things God never said to an angel. Here we go. This is in verse 5, and then I'm pulling in verse 13 because it kind of echoes it. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you, Today, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay, now this is rhetorical, obviously. He's saying none. We know that. God never said that to an angel. The first one's from Psalm 2, and this is a psalm about the Messiah. He never said that to an angel as as he's being installed on his throne. The second one is 2 Samuel 7. God promises David... David, a house, he's going to establish his house, his kingdom that will last forever. But David didn't last forever. His son Solomon didn't last forever. He's saying, we're talking about something that's going to last forever. There's a kingdom, a son who's coming, whose kingdom will last forever. And I got to step in here and just say real quick, this Jewish idea of sonship, especially in those days. When, when, a, when a Jewish uh, boy came of age and was considered a man, he became a full equal. Like if they met for something, he was a full equal. He, he was put on the reading list that officially read and commented on scripture in, in the synagogue. He would be considered, if you saw a father and a son and they were adults, they would be considered equals. This is why when Jesus claimed to be the son of God, this was such an upsetting thing to them. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the son of God and they pick up stones to kill him. And he asked, why, what have I done? You know, what deed have I done that's making you want to kill me right at this moment? And they said, you say you're equal to God. You said you're the son of God. You're saying you're equal to God. And so this sonship is a, is a very key thing. Uh, David here in this passage is, is saying um, um, today, which, which one is that? i got to make sure i got the right one so I don't misquote it. David is saying, uh, um, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And David is saying, Yahweh said to Adonai, literally it says that, both words for God. And this resonates because he sat down. And this is a very key idea in Scripture, and we're going to get into this a little bit more uh, in a minute. But there are three things God never said to angels. And now I want you to see there's two things God does say angels. All right. So let's look at that. That's verse six and seven. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his his angel spirits and makes his servants flames of fire. So it's two things he's first. He's going to say, I want you to worship the sun worship the sun that's he tells angels that's what you do which you think about this to to a jewish person to a jewish person in that day this is an astounding thing to be kind of illuminated why because you only worship god there are no other options and so to command The angels, and I think one of the reasons why this is kind of important to them is angels are the highest beings that a Jew could conceive of other than God himself. The highest beings in the universe are angels. And suddenly he's saying, there's someone higher. There's God, and the Son is God. And this will rock those people's world. It'll rock ours, too, if we really start to think about it. There's none higher, and we are to worship him. And secondly here, we see angels are servants. They are swift. They are fearsome, to be sure, but they are servants of God. And and in verse 14, he also brings that out. So three things God never said to an angel. Two things God does say to angels. And then two things God says to the son, here we go, verse eight. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So the first thing we see, we see here that he's talking to them, he's telling them, your throne, he's talking about this throne throne, He's emphasizing the contrast between sun and angels. And he's saying, your throne, O oh God. So the sun is God. The sun has a throne. It lasts forever. The sun is unique. His character, he's all about justice and righteousness. I mean, as we think about it, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be people who are all about justice and righteousness. This is supposed to be our hallmark. We're supposed to be the ones who show these in our lives and pursue them. He says the scepter, the symbol of a ruler with absolute power, is given to Jesus. And so we have to think about this. Think about how Jesus is the culmination of the whole Old Testament. The Son is all about righteousness and justice. That's what runs through the whole Old Testament. And because he's all about righteousness and justice, that's what led him to the cross. Because the demand for justice, debts must be paid. The demand for righteousness, God's servants must be righteous ones. And the cross is the only answer for our situation under those two demands. We are guilty, and we deserve justice. We are unrighteous, and we deserve death. And he's saying, this is who you are. And then he says in verse, in the verse nine, therefore, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This is another Old Testament um, quotation, but it's a very interesting one, being anointed with the oil of joy. And that's an interesting word that is used there for the word joy. It's the idea when someone is anointed as a king or or anointing of a special occasion, but when it says the oil of joy, that word joy is is uh, this idea of an ecstatic joy or or a delight, but oftentimes it, c- it comes because of something that has happened. Something has happened has caused me great joy. It's used a lot of times about victory in battle. The idea of winning a battle. I I, I talked one time. Um, my dad. Uh, um, served in World War II and Korea and Vietnam, and, and I had a brother that served in Vietnam. And I was talking to my dad one time, and, and, and he was talking about um, this whole idea of being a soldier in battle. And he was saying it's the most frightening. He was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. He says it's the most frightening, most horrifying thing that you've ever done in your life. It just shapes you in such a way. And he says, and yet, when... If you are attacked, and you fight off that attack, and in a sense, you beat them back, you win. He says, the sense of joy, of this overwhelming, yes. He says, and, 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 and it's tempered by, there's dead people here. People I've killed, or people who have friends that have died, and he says, and yet you can't suppress and he said, that's why we see in some soldiers, they get addicted to that, that ecstatic feeling. And it's a serious issue in, in uh, some parts of the military community. Um, it's this word that means a joy of victory, um, it's related to the word uh, Evangelion, which is the word for the good news of the gospel. And, and evangelion is this idea of, of a joy that comes, a good, good news come that it, something has been won for me. For me, it's been won for me. I didn't do it. it, it, it uh, I think the best illustration of that, and I've used this before, um, around 490 BC, there was a huge battle between the Greeks and the Persians, the Battle of Marathon. Marathon, yes. And there was a, there was a runner named Pheidippides. And when The Greeks, though hugely outnumbered uh, through through trickery and guile and just just incredible bravery, defeated this Persian army. Pheidippides, uh, and some of this is all, you know, enlarged myth or something. He ran back to Athens, which was about 25 miles away. He ran back to Athens, and he declared to them, the victory is won. Athens is saved, and and, uh, uh, a couple of the Greek writers that talk about this, they use the word euangelion, that is, the good news was preached to Athens. You didn't earn this, but victory was won on your behalf. You didn't even necessarily deserve it, but these people sacrificed to bring you peace, to bring you victory. Now rejoice in that. And that's why the scripture writers use that for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we did not deserve that victory. But Jesus won for us the victory. He bought us peace. He bought us uh, this, this sense of being someone who looks after us all the time. He bought us this victory through his death on the cross. Through his great love and his great mercy for us, he bought us this peace. And this word that's used here comes out of that same root word. It's that idea of a joy and a victory that you did not do, you did not deserve. And So Jesus is anointed with the oil of joy. We get to partake in it. So think about this. No matter what your struggle is, your victory is secure. No matter what you're going through, in the end, God says, You know, I I have won it all for you. You are going to come finally into the arms of a loving father. And we will spend eternity together. It's been won for you. And so there's this idea. The second thing he says to the son here, he says to him, he, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's talking to Jesus. And they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. And so we ha- here we see there's this idea that the Son is the creator. He laid the foundations of the earth. He has this eternal power that lasts longer than the creation. And therefore, he is not a part of the creation. And he says, the creation will perish, you will remain. It will wear out like a garment. It will wear out like an old shirt. When I was in high school, I used to race um, motorcycles and I still have, I still have the uh, jersey that I wore when I raced. It has the name of a motor, Bull Taco is the name of it. Doesn't it sound crazy? Sounds like a restaurant, but it isn't. It's a Spanish motorcycle. And, uh, and I, I don't even know if I want to put it on anymore. I'm afraid it'll just become, you know, turned to ashes and dust because it's so old. It's, this is so weird, it's in the bottom drawer, left-hand side, the very bottom of my dresser drawer, this old, old jersey, but it's wearing out. Why? Because the creation is like a garment, and it wears out. And, I, I, and I'm holding on to that, I'm holding on to one little bit of my youth. I was somebody, you know? I had a number on my helmet and on my bike, and, and that was it yeah yeah and I've passed this on to my son while back we visited Cody up in Philadelphia and he came downstairs wearing a camp shirt from a camp I, I ran a sports camp from 20 something I mean years ago The there's no armpit it's just a hole one sleeve is missing Totally. It has like a hole here. I mean, it really is just a disgusting rag. It's not good enough to be a rag. I said, Cody, what are you doing with that shirt on? He goes, Dad, my first soccer camp. I can't get rid of this. I'm like, well, you shouldn't wear it either. I mean, (laughs) it's disgusting. I'm not asking to look at you like that. And, and, at, and what, it, what happens? We see this. Creation is ending. It's dying. And he says, you're going to roll it up like a garment. He says, it will just wear out. But you, the son, will still be here. The creator will still be here. The creation can die. But the creator will still be here. And this is important, because back in those days, Greek and Roman philosophers held that, or at least many of them, held that the world was permanent and indestructible. And what is going on here? The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, it's not, because it's just a created thing, and all created things can wear out. The world is temporary, but Jesus is permanent. God has placed Jesus in authority over all creation. And so, therefore, we dare not dare not treat any created object or earthly resource as more important than he is. When we spend more time on those things than we do on thinking and serving Christ, we treat his creation as if it's more important than the creator. When we regard our finances rather than our faith in Christ as the basis for security, we give higher status to an earthly resource than we do to the person who created it. We have to think about that. We have to wrestle. We have to wrestle with it. And so as we look at these things, he's telling if last one, I should say when he he says to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a powerful thing that he's saying here. And I want you to see this because I think this is this is important. This idea of sitting down. You know, one of the things about the angels is they never sit. They never sit. They always stand. Only God sits. And so when he says that Jesus is gonna sit, he's taking a position only God can take. You know, if if, if you read early in in Luke, where the the faithful priest, um, Zacharias, I think, is ministering. And an angel comes to visit him. And it says, he and his wife were righteous. And this angel comes to visit him and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. And if you read it, it's kind of humorous, actually, because he says, how will I know? You know, you got an angel talking to you. And he's like, yeah, but I, how am I gonna, and it's immediate, the angel responds immediately, and it's, uh, to me, it's a little, it's, it's like the angel gets a little ticked off, right? It's like, it's like when uh, Bilbo Baggins was worried that Gandalf was gonna steal, steal the ring from him, and Gandalf gets big, and he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not think I'm going to steal that ring, however he says it, I don't know, it's very impressive, and you should watch it, all right? At more than once. Anyways, so what happens? This angel looks at him and he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Therefore, you will not speak anymore. He says, you're going mute because you questioned me on this. Which you're like, God, rein him in a little bit. I mean, you know, Gabriel, he's got a short temper. I don't know. But, but understand something. Jesus sits, he sat down on the throne, he sat down and that's an incredible thing to say because angels, angels never sit in the presence of God, they are always standing and when we go to heaven, I got a feeling it'll be the same and it's the same even today with we carry on that tradition, right, modern royalty, the king or the queen enters a room, everyone stands Everyone stands. It's a way of acknowledging we're in the presence of something. All right. So he gives us these arguments of contrast. He's saying on one side there's God, on one side there's creation. And he says Jesus created the creation. That pushes him over here. On one side there's God, on one side there's angels. And he's saying angels worship Jesus. That pushes Jesus over to the God side. He keeps putting up these contrasts because he's making a point to them. Jesus, when he says he's the son of God, it doesn't make him lesser. It means he's God. And so we have this one true God. He's the only eternal being. Everything else comes into existence at some point in time. And Jesus created him. It puts him on that side. And then finally, Everyone stands, God sits. And he says, Jesus now is sitting on the throne. And so to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To none. And so in this passage, we see these, he's setting this up. Why? Because he wants us to see something. He wants us to see Jesus is higher than angels and he is God. He's higher than angels, and he is God. Now, let me tell you something else. Next chapter, this is what he's going to teach them. Jesus is lower than angels, and he is human. In the next chapter, he's going to flip it and go back, and he's going to show them how important that is, that Jesus was human. You know, one of the things I think that we can struggle with, uh, I remember in seminary and different times studying some of this, back in the early 1900s, there were huge battles within churches over over the godhood of Jesus, the manhood of Jesus, and people had to take strong positions and sides as Christians, deciding, uh, uh, as Christians, we decided, no, he's both. He's God and man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's both. And other people together said, no, that's not necessarily true. And there were huge wars fought over that. And I think one of the problems that came out of that was, as Christians, sometimes we tend to neglect the humanity of Jesus to emphasize the godhood of Jesus, and, and, I, and I don't want to, to fall too far either way. But one of the things is, the writer of Hebrews is going to take the second chapter and say, I want you to grapple with the fact that he is a man. That he is a man. And why? Why? Because this is what happens. We get this confidence. Jesus is qualified to hold my trust. This application of what happens with us. He has shown his power, his love, and his grace for me to remain resolute in difficult times. He feels what I feel. That's an incredible thing to think that your God knows how it feels. You know, we don't know exactly when Jesus became aware of the fact that he was God. We don't know if maybe when he was born as a baby, He inside, I mean, you know, we don't know. Inside, was he thinking, oh, man, I can't wait till I can talk. You know, he, I, this is so limiting, or whatever. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know there was at least one point in time where he goes, that's what it feels like. See, he created us, but he wasn't like us in that sense to where he, as a human being, went, ouch. That's, this is a powerful thing. It's it's such a, it's such a, uh, um, something for us to look at and go, okay, I can have confidence now. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows what it's like to suffer pain. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to have someone disappoint you terribly. He knows what it feels like to die he knows that he knows that and so for all of us we have a god we have a savior that is alongside of us and he's saying yeah i know how that feels he's 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 mediating before the father and saying father i know that experience i know that i know that but this has been covered this has been covered by the blood and so we can have this confidence in him. He made us so he knew what, what we were, but he became one of us, and he felt it intimately. There's nothing like this in the world. It's life-changing. So we have this confidence. We can have this joy. He sat down. We've won the victory. We didn't earn it. It was given to us. It has been announced to us in all different kinds of ways, Some of you is announced to you by a friend. Maybe some of you a family member. Maybe some of you at a camp. Maybe some of you, you know, at at, at a church. However, but someone has announced to you the good news. And when you accept it, it it changes you. We have this victory. We didn't earn it. It was given to us. We have this incredible now. We can have this joy in the face. Of difficulty. Let me just read to you from Hebrews 10. We're closing up. This is, we'll get to this later on, probably. Oh, Hebrews 10? Yeah, in about three years. Um, um, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice For sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What? By one sacrifice. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If you have accepted... Jesus Christ is your savior. You are in the process now. We call it sanctification. You're being made holy. And it's a process bit by bit over time. But, but he has in the future made you perfect forever. Perfect forever. It's a done deal. That's why in Hebrews he can say he's the author, the beginning, and the perfecter, the end of our faith. He's got you. He's got you. The one, the victorious one, has you. The one who sat down because he is God and has completed his work in salvation, he has you. So the final application, I think, begins, and this, this, this is where I struggle. I mean, we all struggle. This is good news, and I need to tell people. I need to treat it like the good news that it really is, and talk to people about it, and not, you know, I know, I don't wanna be some kind of person that comes on so strong, everybody's like, oh, here he comes, I'm sick of this guy. No. But I want to, even as Jesus did, be someone who is, I love the word, so winsome, a person that other people go, I like being around this person and to be able to share with them the good news, to be like right? He rolled up 25 miles from the Battle of Marathon. This is where we get the marathon in the Olympics and as a race. That's where it came from. Uh, the battle of the marathon 25 miles to athens they should have called it the phidippidon but that would be harder to say i think so so phidippides he rolls up and he says the battle's won you you win all you people you just won you didn't lift a finger these other people did it your sons your husbands people from other cities they did it but you get the fruits of the victory That's a great message to have, isn't it? That's a great message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look at Hebrews, as we begin to explore uh, more and more, and we look next week uh, to the fact that Jesus was brought down lower than angels, and he is human. What that must have blown the angels' mind? Lord, help us to grasp these things and see how they can change us from the inside out, that our hearts can be made different because we know Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has perfected us as we are being made holy. We rest in that. We thank you, God, for for how you work. And we pray now that we would be willing servants as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.